You're listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every individual on Earth. So, uh, good morning and welcome back to The Caravan of Hope with me, Brent Caldwell. And me, COVID Omatic. Um, and this week we are having our very special guest, uh, Robert Patman, here from the University of Otago, whom we're going to introduce in a wee, in a, in a wee bit. Um, today is Friday the 2nd of February, and once again, due to holiday plans, we are coming to you from two different places. Um, COVID, do you want to tell us where you are today? Um, I'm on top of a hill in, in uh, Wellington, a place called Brooklyn, which has this amazing view out over the, uh, I'll just show you, I don't know if this will work, but we'll find out, out over the, the hill, over the, uh, the city, and goes out towards the sea. Lovely, look at that. Te Whanganuri Atara at the bottom of the North Island, or the, the Northern Island of the New Zealand um, group, while Robert and I are sitting in one of the delightful study rooms here at the University of Otago. So, Robert, um, we're here at the University of Otago sure. because that's where you're based. So maybe would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Uh, good morning. Um, my name's Robert Patman. I'm Professor of International Relations at the University of Otago and uh, have been at the university quite a long time and uh, uh, teach courses such as Introduction to International Relations, uh, course on U.S. foreign policy. I'm a senior undergraduate course, third year, and um, more recently, I've been teaching a very interesting course on New Zealand foreign policy, something I inherited from a colleague. And the uh, um, at the master's level, I teach a course um, called simply international politics, but actually, it looks quite a lot at the strategic dimensions of what we understand as international politics. So. Um, yeah, I, I love teaching, I love the interaction with the students, and uh, also I like research, so I'm in the sweet spot, really. Beautiful. Kovado. Uh, what, what got you into that? Something about... Uh, by just, by, uh, Kovado, it wasn't a master plan. Um, <laughs> I grew up in the UK, and like, uh, you know, uh, in the UK, football is the number one sport, just as rugby is the number one sport in this country. And yeah. um, my ambition from the age of five was to become a professional uh, footballer or soccer player, as it's called here. Right. And uh, that fell through at the age of 16. And suddenly, having very little education and spent all my time thinking and practicing football, I was told that avenue wasn't available to me. So I, uh, having failed in that professional aspiration, I had to, uh, I, I had to go back to school, literally, in order to get a job. That was when it's how I started studying, seriously to get a job, but one thing led to another and I found myself at university. At university, um, I did you know, an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, then a PhD. One thing led to another, it wasn't a master plan. I uh, just got in involved and interested in what I was doing, as sometimes happens. And then I spent two years working in the corporate world after my PhD, but decided that wasn't for me. Uh, started work at the University of Surrey, and within six months, I was lucky enough in the early 90s to get offered a job at Otago. And I uh, was then young, with no commitments, and I thought, what a wonderful adventure. And I'd heard great things about New Zealand, so I came over, and of course, I fell in love with the country, and the rest is history. I, my, you know, my kids are born here, um, have family here. So it, it's been a wonderful adventure for me, and 
I feel enormously grateful to New Zealand and New Zealanders who were extremely welcoming. And the funny thing is, and it sounds corny, but it's absolutely true, I arrived in this country knowing no one, uh, but within 24 hours I felt more comfortable and more at home here than I'd ever felt in the country I was born in. Wow, it's amazing. Well, that's Thank interesting you. because uh, Covido is also um, has he fucker puppers back to the UK as well. He was right. born born and raised there, so um, yeah. And I think that's probably the story of our land, really. People it is. people coming yeah. and settling, but that's probably for another podcast, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, Robert, one of the reasons you came to my attention in particular was um, in January that you wrote an article. Um, well, you'd written an article that was published in the South China Post, but um, it was reproduced here in the ODT, mm. and it talked about the UN, and that got my um, antenna up because when we started this um, podcast, one of Covido's um, goals was to say, you know, why, let's take a look at the UN, and is it ready for a reboot? Yeah. And part of the discussion in your um, part of the discussion in your um, article was talking about how um, the veto in particular um, is, is making it a little unworkable for countries to be able to assert themselves and, 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 yeah. and actually get some meaningful action. Yes, I, I think the veto now has become a complete anachronism, when I can say the word, um, and has actually is actually destabilising uh, international security. Um, and since 9-11, in the post-Cold War era, um, the veto has been used. Um, we saw the United States um, avoid being vetoed and therefore illegally invading Iraq in 2003. That was an illegal invasion because it didn't have the authorization of the UN Security Council. We should explain to our listeners that when the UN was established in 1945, uh, the Security Council was designated the key decision-making body with responsibility, uh, with global responsibility for maintaining peace and security. Peter Fraser, who played an active role in the formulation of the UN Charter, um, uh, a very distinguished New Zealand Prime Minister, he always was against the veto, but he tacitly went along with it. The thinking was it was better to have great powers within the UN than outside it, that assumption has unravelled in the post-Cold War era. Why is that unravelled? Because all the problems we now face um, are too big for even superpowers to fix. We are faced with problems which don't uh, recognise borders, or what one UN official says, borders without passports. Uh, sorry, problems without passports. Mm. What sort of problems are we talking about? Climate change, transnational terrorism, problems of an expanded global economy... Um, problems of global health. These problems don't recognise borders. Uh, it's quite encouraging news for small and middle-sized powers because now they have to be part of the solution to any problem. Bad news for those who believe they're great powers and should have a predominant say in what happens in the world. They can't fix these problems. The United States can't unilaterally fix climate change, nor can Russia, nor can... Um, China, even if these countries, uh, even if these countries collaborate with each other, which is looking unlikely at the moment, they st still can't fix these problems. These problems, by definition, can only be solved by self-interested international cooperation, which involves the middle powers and the small powers, such as New Zealand. So, 
we now have a situation where, objectively, um, in, in the international arena, many of the problems we face involve international cooperation, but we have a decision-making structure in which five countries have a privilege that no one else has. They can block anything they don't like, and they do. So you have a situation recently in Gaza um, where on the 27th of October, New Zealand, it was the only member of the Five Eyes to do so, um, this intelligence sharing organization called the Five Eyes, um, um, voted for an immediate humanitarian truce. Um, and it was one of 120 countries in the UN that to do so. Then on the 13th of December, in fact, the 12th of December last year, uh, New Zealand was one of 153 countries that demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. On both occasions, the UN, US um, vetoed any movement towards a ceasefire, and that remains the US position at the moment. So what we have at the moment is that US support for Israel can't fix the problem. They cannot annihilate Hamas, which is their definition of fixing the problem. Uh, but they can block international solutions, which they do. So we're falling between a halfway house. Um, you know, you, we might, as an international community, be willing to grant countries vetoes if they could fix the problem. That was the assumption in 1945. Mm. We don't like the fact they've got the veto, but uh, hey, these guys can fix our problems for us. Unfortunately, the United States, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, Russia, China, the UK, and France, despite their veto privileges, can't fix many of the problems that confront the world. And so we need urgently reform of the United Nations. Can I ask a question then? If, if Is there any mechanism by which the UN has a review, you know, like Covido's request about... Um, you know, uh, saying, uh, let's do a reboot. Is there anything in what they do that would uh, enable uh, that process to take place where there was suddenly like, okay, look, it's been however many years, it's time to rejig the thing, let's there's, have a look at that. There's been various attempts at UN reform, but there's never been a consensus within the all-important permanent five group. So if you talk to each of the five members... <laughs> We've got the veto. They all say, oh, of course we want reform. Yeah, UN's inefficient. We want to get it going. But the, de the devil's in the detail. And they've never been able to agree on how the UN should move forward. Mm. Some people, the proposals vary. Sometimes people say, well, we should expand the UN Security Council to be more representative of the world the way it is in the 21st century, which is a fair point. There's lots of countries which are not on the U UN Security Council, Japan, India other important countries, maybe South Africa, which, you know, don't figure, but they're very important countries in the 21st century. Uh, that, that's a reasonable argument, but the problem is, would it simply reproduce the problems we have? Would these countries be given the veto? And how can... This is the interesting thing, is existing veto wielders are quite happy to expand the Security Council, providing the new permanent members don't have the veto. So it seems to me that... You know, one way out of this, of course, the, the, there's two possible ways out of this, maybe three. Um, one way is for, and this sounds unlikely, for the permanent five 
to recognise that they actually have a vested interest in fixing many of the problems they can't fix and then relinquish the veto in order to facilitate that. <laughs> but that sounds unlikely. Um, the second, I think, actually much more realistic, is rather than countries like New Zealand and other middle powers and small powers urging the five to give up their veto privilege, which they won't, um, maybe the General Assembly should begin to assert itself. And um, one possible suggestion, which I think has really got legs if the US General Assembly members wish to put it, uh, to, to push it, I should say, is that the veto, a proposal along the following lines, that when the US General Assembly achieves two-thirds majority on a particular issue, now you take Gaza, the resolution of the, 20, uh, of the uh, 12th of December, 153 countries voted for an immediate humanitarian truce. So more than two-thirds of the general members of the General Assembly were united on the same resolution. Now, you could introduce a reform whereby, in such a situation, if it's, so di it's very difficult to achieve a two-thirds agreement, by mm. the way, mm. on anything... Uh, but in the rare instance where the General Assembly achieves a massive and overwhelming support for an issue such as a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, then that would overrule any veto held by the UN Security Council. And I think that could satisfy both the concerns, some of the concerns of the veto wielders, but also some of the concerns that minorities in the General Assembly would impose solutions which are not represented. So can I take up that idea? Let, let's say <clears throat> magically that occurred and, and, the, and a two-thirds majority meant that it would there'd be a resolution made. You know, you off, I often, I, and I have to say, I am completely new in this area, so forgive yeah. my ignorance, but if they passed a resolution and, and they, you often hear the word that, it, that it's a binding resolution... You know, well, they're only binding in the UN Security Council. All resolutions of the General Assembly, I should add, are non-binding. And I guess that, that strikes me, and maybe that's where Covido's thinking was early on, that if, if a decision is made, and those, let's say those two-thirds of countries all vote that way, yeah. can it be enforced? Um, I think it can, by precedent and procedure. Um, the first thing, of course, is that the members of the General Assembly have to discover courage. Many, the, the, the absolutely overwhelming majority of UN members are enormously frustrated by the fact that five countries have a privilege that no one else has. Talk mm. about an unequal you know, organisation. Mm. Um, and one thing that really stuck in my mind memory, many, many years ago, a former New Zealand Prime Minister, uh, Foreign Minister, Mr McCulley, in was addressing the UN General Assembly in September 2012. And New Zealand was about to launch its bid to become a non-permanent member of the uh, UN Security Council of two-year term, beginning, if it was successful, in October 2014. And countries planned these things a long way in ahead. And Mr McCulley, in his speech, uh, in a speech to the General Assembly, made the pitch for New Zealand um, that you know, it was a good international citizen 
and could make a positive contribution. In the speech, he said that one of New Zealand's objectives would be to constrain the use of the veto. The words hardly got out of his, his mouth before there was a, civil, a spontaneous um, ovation from the General Assembly. And that conveyed to me, and this has been confirmed with conversation with diplomats, there is enormous frustration. So why don't they demand that China and the US and other powers uh, in the Permanent Five give up their veto? It's because they do not want to offend them. China is the number one trade partner of 20 members of the UN Security Council and, uh, sorry, 20 members of the General Assembly, including New Zealand and Australia. And the United States is the number one trade partner for about the same number of countries. So you have 40 countries, by definition, who know that their trade relations with those two powerful countries could be compromised if they had the temerity for them to demand that they give up this unfair privilege that you have. But, you know, um, I think on balance, the way things are going, kicking and screaming, we are going to have to move towards UN reform. Because we live in an interconnected world, we are interdependent, and um, we have problems which just are not getting any attention. And you have the farce of Russia, a permanent member of the UN Security Council with veto privileges, tearing up the UN rule book, invading a neighbour illegally, and then vetoing any resolution condemning the, res <laughs> the invasion it's just carried out. So you could argue, and I think this is really, for many Kiwis, this is a really important issue. We want to see the extension of rules and principles and laws. We actually want to see an international system based on rules, not power. If you believe in that, then the veto is inconsistent with that because five people have a get-out-of-jail card all the time. And, and so yeah. you, we have the very... You know, what in the global south is seen, with some justification, as hypocritical situation where the United States is extolling everyone else to support international rules and institutions, but the US reserved the right to three times used the veto to block what the majority wanted, which was a, in the UN General Assembly, which was an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And a, as a result of that veto, um, which was first exercised about 10 days into the crisis, fast forward four months, 26,000 Palestinians have died, 70% of whom are women and children, who by definition had nothing to do with the events of the, the the horrific events of the 7th of October. So a lot of innocent people are paying a terrible price. The world at large is paying a big price for these five countries having an outdated privilege which they can't actually use effectively. They can block things, but they can't put solutions in the place of the problems or, or the solutions they're frust you know, frustrating. So... It, it, we're falling between two stalls. We're not getting self-interested international solutions like an, a, an approach to climate change that works. Um, and countries are effectively blocking international solutions but without offering anything in its place. And that the Gaza crisis highlights this very effectively. Cavada? Um, yeah, I... I 
seem to remember reading in your article that you said actually the US has blocked 50 resolutions over the... Yeah, that's that all to do with this. Not just the last yeah. few months. They've actually blocked many resolutions which have condemned the, like the, the taking of the land in Gaza. And yeah, and so it's domestic there. politics. It's because Israel is so influential in US domestic politics uh, that mm. um, any ambitious politician in the US tends to be very cautious about anything critical of Israel. So you have a situation where every president since Bill Clinton have publicly condemned the illegal settlements that Israel has expanded in yeah. the West Bank. So you now have 750,000 Israelis, which under international law are illegal. And every president has protested about this rhetorically, but that's as far as it goes. They don't actually say, oh, we'll stop giving you 3.8 billion each year because of the anticipated damage domestically to anyone who did that. And, um, yeah. But, but what, I'm, what I'm seeing now is there's actually a bit of a backlash in the US against President it, Biden. There is. There's an abandoned Biden movement, which is uh, potentially very dangerous for the Democrats and the Biden uh, bid to become re-elected in particular in the November 24 election, you have large numbers of young people. One of the remarkable things about this situation uh, is that the Biden administration at the beginning of the crisis when Hamas carried out that horrendous terror attack, I think Biden, basically, his, his response was flawed from the beginning. He gave unconditional support to Israel, even if Israel stretched humanitarian laws and in fact carried out war crimes. The US, but I think the US did that on the assumption that with an election looming up in 24, they couldn't afford but not to be in, his, in Israel's corner. And secondly, they thought they could control the narrative, but the Biden administration lost control of the narrative within about three or four days. One of the reasons is that many people, young people do not rely on mainstream media to get their information. They mm. get it from a variety of sources. Mm. And it's no coincidence that if you look at what's happened in the US, and it's remarkable because for the, it's unprecedented, the level of support now. 60% of Americans polled right across the board want a ceasefire in Gaza. And, and yeah. secondly, the, those who would identify themselves as pro-Palestinian has overtaken the traditional American, comprehensive American support for Israel amongst the US public. So that's another interesting trend. And um, uh, Mr. Biden still has been very reluctant to, um, if you like, acknowledge the strength of feeling internationally. What we've seen in Gaza is an international disgrace, a stain on humanity. Uh, where, really yeah, I mean, it's it, it, war crimes, it's a war, you know, it, it, as soon as Israel at the beginning of its retaliation, um, cut off all food, fuel and electricity to Gaza, a densely populated area of 2.3 million, that's illegal under international law. That's a, a blockade is an act of war. And after all, this is the occupying power. So it, it, it's doubly illegal. I'm just mindful of our time, Robert. Sure. And um, two things struck me about that last um, little conversation you had there was um, our government, and particularly our Prime Minister, 
has not come out and called for a ceasefire. A am I right in thinking that? Um, no, they've come up... It, it's, it's, you're quite right about the mixed messaging. Um, I, meant, I referred earlier to the fact that New Zealand was the only member of the Five Eyes who voted for an immediate humanitarian truce mm. on the 27th of October, but we were almost apologetic in lining up with Ireland as being one of the few Western liberal democracies to side with much of the global south in demanding immediate ceasefire. We went further in December. We actually co-sponsored a demand, not a calling, a demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Um, so diplomatically, in the General Assembly, New Zealand's position has been, if you like, it's been quite, it's quiet diplomacy, but in substantive terms, we placed our side on the, on the side of the majority. But what has been disappointing for many Kiwis, I think right across the political divide in this country, there is a sense of fairness. People talk about having a fair go. And um, mm. I think what's disappointed many Kiwis, not just Labour supporters, but national supporters, uh, Greens, etc., etc., has been that our government, the old government, the outgoing government, the caretaker government and the new coalition government have not been speaking up for the rights of Palestinians. Of course Israel's got the right to self-defence. Of course it has. But that right is not limitless. And it doesn't involve killing innocent civilians. And I think what's been a major international disappointment, a number of colleagues have said this to me internationally, of all countries in the world, many of them expected. This was the country that stood up to the United States over going non-nuclear, non-nuclear security option in uh, the mid-80s. It also, under Helen Clark in 2003, refused, unlike Australia, unlike the UK, refused to support America's illegal invasion of Iraq. And that was a very wise strategic decision. So on two big occasions, we've shown a lot of courage. I think many people expected New Zealand not to be in lockstep rhetorically with many of the traditional partners. They expected New Zealand to speak out. Mm. And I think that's been a disappointment. So to summarise, our position has been mixed. In terms of the votes cast in the General Assembly, quite good. But in terms of publicly urging America to rethink, you know, we've been quite complicit and, and quiet. But at the same time, we have deployed yes. our own military personnel, okay, not a, not a sizable number, but it's probably more the, the visuals of it than... Yes, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I recently wrote a piece on this about the NZDF deployment of six personnel... Um, it's, it conveys to the rest of the world a very selective approach to international law. We have Mr Luxon proudly telling New Zealanders and the world that, we're, that New Zealand is prepared to act on its values of supporting freedom of navigation. And that's true. We do have a right, you know, New Zealand has been a strong believer and we're a small global trader, but we do depend on a rules-based order. True. But I haven't heard the say, we, we, you know, it's one thing to be concerned about a potentially lawless situation, and it is lawless at the moment, in the Red Sea where the Houthis are attacking 
uh, civilian shipping. But, of course, there's also a lawless situation where 26,000 Palestinians have died, where the laws of war have been ignored, where there are summary executions, where 55% of residential buildings in, Palestinian, in, Palestine, uh, in Gaza have been destroyed. So I think by, from, from the point of view of many countries, particularly in the global south, New Zealand seemed to be confusing the symptoms of a conflict, that is the Houthis responding to the Gaza conflict, by showing their displeasure at the world watching what they saw as carnage and massacre in Gaza, we seem to be confusing the symptoms of the fallout of the Gaza conflict with its principal cause, which is an unrestrained, unrelenting military assault, which does not distinguish between civilians and Hamas fighters in the Gaza. And therefore, if we'd been consistent, we should have been demanding an immediate ceasefire to try to resurrect the rule of law in what is a, a situation where war is being conducted with impunity, where Geneva conventions have gone out the window, we've been silent on these issues. So we, uh, uh, someone asked me after I wrote the article, well, what, what, what should we have done? Mm. And it's easy to be wise after the event, but I think what we should have done from the outset is demand an immediate ceasefire and, in, and, and say to the Americans, when the Americans made a request, because we responded to an American request to send the six NZDF staff, we should have said we'll be happy to send six, six NZDF staff if you change your position and immediately back a permanent ceasefire and stop vetoing every attempt to do so. That would have been a much more balanced approach. Say publicly, we're only too happy to support efforts to stop the Houthis. Of course, the Houthis have promised to stop all attacks on um, civilian and commercial shipping as soon as there's a ceasefire. Which brings us neatly back to the whole dilemma of countries not going against the veto-holding powers because, again, there's high stakes in their relationships with those countries that hold those powers. So yeah. is Luxon standing up and saying, I demand a ceasefire, treading on the corns of the relationship that we've got with... Oh, yes, I think Mr Peters and Mr Luxon uh, perceive that if they made such a step, uh, we would be, you know, um, we would lose our place of having very good relations. But let's be quite clear about this. Um, we took that risk in 2003 when Helen Clark turned to the Americans and said... Your move, your illegal invasion of Iraq will be a strategic disaster. It will boost al-Qaeda, not weaken it. And by the way, it hasn't been backed by the UN Security Council, and so it's illegal. The Americans were very unhappy with New Zealand for a year or so. But as America got bogged down in Iraq, it quietly recognised that we were right. Lots of Americans at the moment would be delighted if New Zealand spoke up because they share the same view. America is a democracy. 60% of Americans want a ceasefire. So, in a sense, if, if Mr Luxon and Mr Peters have shown courage on this issue, the rewards may have been very, very substantial moving forward. It's no coincidence, by the way, that three years after New Zealand had defied the US over the Iraq invasion, it was the US 
but decided to move on from the nuclear dispute and say, let's have excellent relations. Yeah. It wasn't New Zealand that blinked, yeah. it was the United States that blinked. Mm. Because the New Zealand position coincided with how the situation developed in Iraq. We said it would be a disaster, it turned out to be a disaster. Well, that's probably a good place for us to, to leave it for now, Robert. I, I've, um, I really value your time. and um, Yes, I do apologise for being a bit late. No, no, no. It's just um, the generous offer to come and chat to us is, is greatly appreciated. Covido, did you have anything else that you wanted to say before Robert pops off? Um, I just wonder you have to go immediately. I did want to ask you about what, what you thought a solution might be, if you could... For the, uh, the Gaza conflict like? at the moment, um, very briefly, I think what would reduce the leverage of Hamas is to have an Israeli government which accepts the need for a Palestinian state. And so what the Palestinians need is a clear pathway to a viable state. And Mr Netanyahu, in a remarkable statement, which many people missed on the 16th and the 17th of December, took pride in the fact that he had helped block the emergence of a Palestinian state. And he had actually supported Hamas as an Israeli asset until 2000, uh, in 2019. He made a statement saying that Hamas helps divide the Palestinians, mm. therefore prevents a state, because mm. Hamas is a militant extremist organisation. Mm. By the way, most Palestinians detest Hamas. But this yep. conflict has boosted Hamas. It's not weakened it. Mm. And, and, and the, one of the baffling things, and I, I rem, you know, and I, I, so to answer your, your question, Kovado, I think one thing that could diffuse the situation is the end of illegal settlements, the Palestinians being given the prospect of having their own state, that would, if you sense, that would cut down Hamas's leverage because they present themselves as a defender of Palestinian rights. And while Palestinians don't have those rights, they get some credibility. Mm. Um, yeah. But it's going to take the Americans, the Americans at some point have to say, I mean, the Americans are in an incredible position at the moment, the Biden administration. I can't think of any historical precedent where a country generously arms another country and those arms are being used for a purpose of which the donor country doesn't approve. Mr Netanyahu says he doesn't want a Palestinian state and will not move towards it, and yet America continues to arm him. I can't think of any country gives arms to another one when that country is pursuing policies it disagrees with. It's an extraordinary situation. There does have to be a rethink in Washington. I think Mr Netanyahu, uh, and this is a view of many Israelis, needs to go. He was yeah. trying to introduce unpopular judicial reforms. There are plenty of good people in Israel who, who recognise the need to live side by side and in peace with yeah. the Palestinians. One of the justifications I hear, I read, I see for the Israeli um, approach to Hamas is that Hamas, I'm not sure which wing of it it is, whether it's the political wing or what other wings they have, says that for them, um, and in fact, um, I had a friend, um, Abram Stern, talking to us from Jerusalem um, a couple of times in this series, and he was saying, you know, for their view is that Hamas 
he says uh, they'd, they'd gladly give a, a Palestinian state tomorrow if they could get Hamas to accept that um, the Jewish people are there to stay and that that they've previously said that um, they want to wipe out the Jewish people. Yeah, but Hamas actually, ref actually uh, in 2017, changed their own constitution on that. And they said, uh, from you know, they didn't, make, they, didn't, they didn't make the headlines, but in 2017, how genuine they are towards the new constitution they've drafted, but in the new constitution, they want Israel to go back to the internationally recognised borders of 1967. That means that Israel would have to give up the illegal settlements. Um, yeah. It would have to um, not have any control over East Jerusalem. And um, all these encroachments, by the way, by Israel on the West Bank, on, on East Jerusalem, are illegal under international mm. law. And in short, Hamas now claims, and I don't know how genuine it is, but I'm just sort of putting it on the table. Um, they have, you know, they claim that if Israel was to do that, then they would accept the reality of a uh, Israeli state. But you see, from their point of view of defiance and presenting themselves as the principal agent of resistance, and remember, Hamas is in competition with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, Fatah. Mm. Um, you know, they, they get some of their leverage from by being very defiant. And until the international community recognises that the Palestinians deserve a pathway, not Hamas, Palestinians yeah. deserve a pathway, I don't think, I think Hamas, are, while they're being repressed, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that more than 300 Palestinians have lost their lives in Gaza thanks to armed settlers, with the Israelis arming Israeli settlers, illegal uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank. I just, you said Gaza, but I think it was the West Bank. West Bank, sorry. Yeah. I meant the West Bank. Okay, so... And many um, have been killed in the West Bank too, haven't they? By the, the soldiers and taken, uh, yes. arrested. Settlers who are armed and soldiers have killed... Um, not just adults, but young people in the West Bank. They've carried out nightly raids. And the other thing is that the Palestinians perceive, you know, you, you raised this question about the Palestinians to recognise Israel. Well, Fatah has recognised the reality of Israel. Have they been rewarded for that? Has the Palestinian Authority... Uh, being treated as an equal by Israel for recognising Israel. There's no evidence of that. So you see, Hamas exploits that. They say, look, they call, you know, they, 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 they refer to the compliant Hamas authority, Palestinian Authority, the Fatah Authority, with contempt, mm -hmm. saying that's what, that's what happens if you try to do a deal with Israel. Um, it gets you nowhere and you're treated just as badly as if you don't. So I, I, I do think the key player here is the United States. I think the United States, interestingly, under Anthony Blinken, uh, the Secretary of State and Biden, are genuine about wanting a two-state solution. Um, but it's got to be a viable Palestinian state. And that means some of the illegal settlements will have to be removed. Um, and that will cause tremendous divisions within Israel. So it, it, it's... It's been relatively easy to establish these illegal settlements and evict Palestinians, 
it will be very difficult to reverse that process. It will need strong leadership from the United States and it will need strong leadership even more so from a Palestine, uh, Israeli government. So it, it's, it's difficult to be optimistic at the moment, but I do think there's been a global shift in public opinion. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, well, um, on behalf of COVID and myself, Robert Patman, thank you very much for thank joining you. us today. Thank you for being so generous with your time. You're um, perhaps at a, another stage we might ask you to come back if you would be so inclined. Um, but um, for now, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So that was um, Robert Patman, who is... Um, a uh, distinguished chair here at the University of Otago um, and is often um, asked to contribute to um, news and events and um, reporting on international crises. He first came to the attention of the world through his comments on the attacks on the um, World Trade Centre September 2001 and in that time he, he's now kind of like the go-to person to... Um, to speak to on international affairs. So um, we're very grateful that he was able to join us. One question I would dearly have loved to ask him, but we were running out of time, was how did he think the election, at which, you know, God forbid, Mr Trump is re-elected, what will that mean for the UN and for international politics? Uh, yes, that would be a... That's a, a whole... <laughs> that's a whole show on its own. It is, um, but he was kind of he was kind of hinting that uh, actually because of the shift in opinion in mm. the states that, that there may be an outcome that we just don't predict. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went on the peace march last Saturday, and that was that was well attended. And um, yeah, the, there's there's a lot of upset out there, and I was able to reconnect with my good friend um, Rula Talakma, who is uh, um, studied and did her PhD in conflict studies here at the University of Otago, and she's agreed to be our guest next week. Something I did following last week's episode was I tuned in and listened to the Unapologetic podcast that Abram recommended the two um, Palestinians who are living in Israel. Um, that's been interesting um, because it, it, the, the learning I took from it was that we tend to speak about the Palestinians when in actual fact there's such diversity right across the, the entire um, people and yeah. um, they call their podcast unapologetic because they clearly are pursuing the humanitarian line, but they're very yeah. clear and very keen to try and tidy up people's views on what it's like to be on the ground. In Israel. Yeah. So, um, well worth a listen, if you can. So um, thank you very much to um, Robert Patman for joining us on the um, Caravan of Hope um, this week. Um, certainly lots to think about and lots to consider. But from me, Brent Caldwell... And me, COVID medic. May you be well. May you be happy. May you live with ease. And may you live in peace. May we all live in peace. To change the way things are. It's 
So if you 